2: Greetings comrades, happy new year! We are happy to report that our agent, Grandfather Frost, using the full might of Soviet anti-air artillery, has shot down the capitalist spy, who has identified himself under special interrogation procedures as one Klaus Santa Santavovich. Our people are working on extracting more information from this imperialist spy but we are proud to report that our state has been protected from capitalist influence once again Meanwhile, Grandpa Frost will proceed to hand out New Year's gifts to good, obedient and loyal children who have read their marks as planned He has promised to the party authorities that this year he'll be a real Stachanowicz and fulfill his plan by 120% GLORIOUS SUCCESS COMRADES! (laughs) Okay, jokes aside, uh, welcome to the Eastern Border. This episode being the final one of the year will be a bit more chill than usual, but I hope you won't mind that much. If you follow us on Facebook or Twitter, then you already know that we had interviews with a bunch of major Russian opposition journalists and people from the region who are talking about Russia, about that bit later, and this episode is about those interviews. As I have a lot of recorded material right now, which I had to translate and and redo all these things, which is like all in Russian, I can't just give them to you directly, sadly. But we are working to put our recorded material on YouTube next month with subtitles and such, you know, so that you can get the, the full amount of everything that we did. But for now, I will make sure that you know about what's going on with the people who actually try to be honest, clear and, you know, working hard so that some good changes can happen, maybe. Possibly. Hopefully. First off, with uh, the big guys. I visited the offices and spoke with people working in Medusa.io. They are an independent Russian news agency based in Riga, Latvia, my own hometown. I have been using their articles in my shows and have shared them on social media as well. I trust them. They are a good source. And they just vastly improved the English part of their site, by the way. So you can get some objective and real Russian news if you're interested in that. And there will be a link in the show notes for that. If you want a Russian news aggregate in English who are actually competent. Also, they have dabbled in podcasting, but they do them in Russian, kind of in the style of, you know, Slate's Political gap Fest or Vox the Weeds, where they analyze the current events. They also have some Russian podcasts in Russian uh, about their own materials. You know, seemed interesting, and uh, yeah, they didn't know I existed, so I contacted them to find out their story and to, you know, say that, hey, they're not the only guys doing this in the Baltics. Now, I uh, first of all, I wanted to start with their history, and this is what they told me. See, uh, according to them, everything started on the 12th of March, 2014, when Putin's buddy, Alexander Mamut, uh, who at that point had just outright bought the Lentaru news site as an attempt to increase the state's control over the media, fired the chief editor of that site, Lentaru, <coughs> Galina Timchenko. And uh, in protest, most of the journalists working there left with her. After that, she was contacted by Mikhail Hodorkovsky with the offer fund a new media company. However, he insisted that because of risks of doing that in Russia, it should be created in a European Union country. And even though the deal with Khodorkovsky fell through, new investors were found, and they are kept anonymous, though, for, um, I think, quite obvious reasons. ms Tienchenko said that, quote, We understood that in Russia it's more than likely that they will not allow us to do our job, end quote. So, because of various economical and cultural reasons, and because a lot of people here speak Russian, and because we were close, they moved here, and they opened up their site in the 20th of October 2014. Since then they have grown to become the biggest and most reliable opposition news media. Well, I call them opposition news media, they don't, by the way. Uh, They have been working around from these parts, since then too, And for mainstream Russian media, more mainstream, this move obviously meant that they became terrible, terrible people. But because of the important, well-known names involved in this project, and because of their sheer size, they have managed to mostly avoid being called fascists and are taken more seriously than other news outputs. Now, like I said before, they don't specifically consider themselves opposition journalists, as uh, they try to be objective, and they really are, and that's... uh, quality not widely spread among mass media in Russia, and they don't support any opposition candidates outright. They are ready to criticize everyone equally, and they often do. I also asked them about their name, but uh, that just turns out to be picked because, you know, it sounded cool. Quote, a neat, round, internationally understood name that's easy to remember. There's nothing really mythical about it. Which, for me, being a nerd is a bit sad, you know. In the end, the journalists themselves report that over here in Riga they can completely focus on their work, which is both news aggregation and reporting, and writing analytical articles and making, you know, their own stuff. As I saw in their office, uh, it looked very laid back. It had a full kitchen, couple of sofas, Xboxes in the resting room, and people mostly working on their laptops. However, this first impression turned out to be deceptive, as they told me they often work quote Spartan shifts from like 12 to 14 hours because A. There are a lot of news and they're seriously trying to be as objective as possible and doing some real work there, and B. Well, because apparently they really love what they do, so it's fun. Or so their bosses tell me. But you know, people need to sleep and relax too, which is why apparently they have this laid-back attitude, as in their line of work, strict office atmosphere would be awful. One thing that interested me the most is that they don't post almost any news or articles concerning the Baltic countries. Turns out, this is out of the level of professionalism. They are a Russian news service with mainly a Russian audience, so they don't care that much. And also, which surprised me, they said that they respect our news sources in our country, and that if something really concerning Russia would happen, uh, then they would of course write about it, but problems in the Baltics... Yeah, according to them, they are better left to our own journalists, whom, whom they call professional colleagues, which was nice, because, you know, I'm one of them. Of course, I also poke their journalists with questions about their opinions about Russian politics and economy, especially what are you allowed to say officially and why. And this needs some explaining so you can understand the context, and um, yeah, this question, by the way, has a direct impact to my conversations with uh, the other opposition journalists. You see, as I follow news about our region, sometimes it feels strange because there are people, important and famous people, like businessman, owner of large retail and fast food trade Dmitry Potapenko, or an economist Stepan Demora, who criticized their government from inside the country that don't seem to get into any trouble. But at the same time, there again have been attacks on journalists in Russia very recently, like the stabbing of an Echo Moskvy journalist Tatiana Felgenhauer by officially a <clears throat> mentally ill person just after her show in her workplace. She was stabbed and her throat was slit. She survived, thankfully. and. Uh, now and how, like another famous opposition journalist, Yulia Latinina, who among many others have left Russia for fear of her life, uh, yeah, she left after her car was burned in front of her house by unknown assailants. Before that, her house was sprayed, sprayed with like really nasty chemicals, the ones that are used by um by kind of a SWAT anti-riot units, you know, that that smell like really really bad, so that make people feel ill, so that they wouldn't would stop their rioting. Yeah, her house was sprayed with that. It's um, obviously uh, purchased in an independent store. And again, like there are like criticizers like Potapen Kordemura or another criticizer of Putin's economical policies who hasn't felt anything, Pavel Grudinin, uh, who is, by the way, interestingly enough, the owner of uh Zao imeni Imenilenina, or and this'll sound a bit silly for the Western listener, <clears throat> Sovchos named after Lenin Limited. One of the largest and actually profitable farming businesses and sort of communities in Russia. It's literally a Sovkhoz, which is kind of like Kolkhoz, that stayed alive during the collapse and formed the company, but the structure stayed the same as previously. And, uh, yeah, these bigger guys, important guys, really smart people, they they don't have any repercussions, but a lot of, like, journalists do, and I wondered about that. Uh, this Grudinin, he's been with discussions with aforementioned Potapenko and Demora, and on opposition YouTube and news shows, and uh, he, by the way, is even the current presidential candidate of the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, which is one of the so-called uh, sanctioned opposition parties there now, who, by the way, despite their name, are more about social democratic policies, but they're not very effective that obviously. Now, why do these people get into trouble, but there are journalists being stabbed and, you know, forced to go into exile? And uh, this, by the way, don't get me wrong, uh, Dmitry Potapenko and Grudinin uh, are, and the economists, other people, are. they're really smart people, but their interests are economical, well, which is obvious, they're, you know, economists and businessmen. And I'm not saying they're somehow bad or anything, it's just that what they say is basically common sense in Russia, they're definitely not among Putin's cohorts, but in the situation where they could lose their businesses very easily, it's uh, understandable why they tend to stay on the safe side. They have more to lose than idealistic journalists, at least that's my opinion. Oh, and lately, by the way, Grudinin, who is, like I said, the presidential candidate of the communists, which is, again, communist in name only, to be honest, yeah, he's being criticized there uh, right now, actively, for the possibility that he actually might be Jewish. So, you know, that kind of worms is still well and alive in Russia. And um, about Potapenko, and these are breaking news here, as I had to scrap my previous recording because of glitches in the Matrix, yeah, I decided to write to him while I was uh, thinking about this script. And he's a very busy entrepreneur, but uh, he actually has agreed to answer my questions about Russian economy and the relationships with the EU and what he thinks needs to be done so that we could all cooperate and prosper. Uh, That's happening in January, which is a huge thing for me, actually. But yeah, about this, why some people are punished and others are not. What I got from Medusa is that uh, they consider that you can apparently criticize the government and call them neo feodals as long as you speak only about how everything's been stolen and how economy is in shambles. The opposition journalists speak about liberal values, and by liberal here I mean in the classical sense, you know, democratic, rights-based governments, tolerance, stuff like that. They are way more dangerous because they are in direct opposition to the proclaimed values of Kremlin's elites. Meanwhile, even Dmitry Medvedev, the prime minister, sometimes says bad things about economy, and the blame of the kleptocratic government can, you know, be shifted around by the guys on top to lower levels, to various ministers, governors of the specific regions and the like. As they told me, Medusa that is, people in Russia understand that they are in economical crisis, but instead of blaming the Putin and his elites, uh, they have this classical czar is good, the nobles are bad mentality, and yeah, they often put the blame on their local politicians, or you know, even the West sometimes. You know, uh, these foreign agents. There are people out there who think that their lower quality of life is a direct direct result of you know Merkel and Trump and Trudeau and whatnot directly sabotaging them instead of whatever things have whatever things have their own politicians done. Also, again, remember that there is still the soviet mentality there. Corruption is expected. It's bad when the officials steal my money, but hey, they're kind of, you know, our own guys. According to Levada Center official statistics, about 69% of people of Russia say that they would also embezzle money if they were in positions of power. They would abuse their position, be very corrupt and blatantly steal from the people. And uh, this is the mentality thing that's kind of hard to explain, but basically, as long as these businessmen and economists who openly talk about the incompetence of the government and how they have stolen everything uh, stay only to the fact that there must be economical change and this corruption must end and we must trade with the West, then the government doesn't really care about them. But when you speak about the, like, real, more deeper form of change, about the idea that, hey, corruption is bad in general, but maybe, you know, people should think for themselves on a more philosophical level, when you speak about that, when you speak about the fact that economical issues might just be symptoms of deeper problems of the Mafia state, uh, then, then you get into real trouble. And by the way, with this, the people in Medusa, when they explain this to me, with this having a sad smile on their face, uh, yeah, they also added that they would like to want to go back to Russia one day. And this was kind of um, the peak of the conversation, the, the emotional point. At this point, we had about like 20 minutes more, and then we discussed the day-to-day journalism work and their podcasting efforts. And we might do some um, projects together in the future, but that is better kept as a pr- surprise, really. I don't want to promise something here that I couldn't fulfill. But there are things coming up there, possibly, and don't forget to check them out in the show description for uh, for their English site. I uh, hope I'll do some little small things for them as well here. Now, in contrast with Medusa, the three journalists I'd like to speak about next are much smaller than them. But they're very influential, often quoted, and mentioned even on mainstream Russian news, mostly in negative light, though. And uh, they mostly work on YouTube, which has turned into the platform where opposition actually has a voice. Even the most important politician out there, opposition politician, that is, Alexander Navalny, himself basically organized his protests and his massive campaign and his organization through YouTube. Better use of the platform than cat videos, if you ask me. The problem here was that I couldn't get direct Skype interviews with these guys, as uh, they're very cautious and wary, and they kind of don't want to speak with um, people they don't know personally about this, uh, especially from Latvia. And you know, if they speak with me, they also might be just declared uh, foreign agents, and then they would be under even more trouble. But they, these following three people, they do live streams where you can donate a small amount of money, about 50 rubles, which is slightly less than a dollar, and you know, get your question on the screen and answered live. So I did that for like about two weeks on their shows, <laughs> you know, spent, spent a bit of my her- hard-earned cash to get more information, and got some interesting answers to my questions. I like to support them too, and uh, since then I have sent emails to them, some got answered, some didn't, but it is important to compare these folks with major news aggregate of the opposition Medusa, and it's important to find out what their opinions are. And sadly, the English of those people aren't that good, so their opinion isn't heard much outside Russian-speaking communities, but they do provide a quite a great look, in my opinion, on what is going on in the Russian opposition, as it's really nowhere near a monolith entry. First off, there is Alexander Romanenkov. He's a journalist quite well-known that previously has worked in major Russian mainstream channels, like RTVI and RenTV, before he got fired for his criticisms of the current regime. Now he runs Realnaya journalistic channel on YouTube that means real journalism and uh, he's got a deal with a new independent Russian TV channel Krik TV, which means Shout TV uh, which is a channel consisting mostly of uh, independent contractors which is that they combine and air and uh, where his one of his new Russian news series are being shown there Krik TV is a kind of relatively new channel it was founded in 2013 which uh, according to them, tries to be objective, and, you know, they're they're known to present various opinions on there, as they consist of these contractors. Romanenko, with the help of his colleagues, also has set up a special Real Russian News YouTube channel, where you can find his news programs, the Serenia Journalistica series, with English subtitles, uh, translated by his Russian-Canadian friend that has appeared on some interviews there. I will post a link in the show notes too with this as well. I would call Romanenkov a representative of the more conservative Russian opposition wing. See, on his show he spends a lot of time talking about everyday nonsense that happens around the country, from mostly the materials that people send him, and from smaller regional newspapers that aren't popular, therefore not under that harsh of a control. Sometimes he picks and chooses other facts from, from like major TV and just analyzes how propaganda presents them, And, obviously, he has no love for Putin and his cronies, but he's willing to work within the system. That is, he believes that the Constitution is what it is, and that you should go to the elections, even if you know that they're faked. Because, in Russia, there are no minimum requirements of activity there, you know, for the elections to be valid. So, even if Putin alone comes and votes for himself, you know, he will still get elected. Thus, according to Romanenkov, you should go and vote for an opposition member, any opposition member with even the slightest chance to get some percentage in the presidential elections, as is kind of a political statement. Or, if you have no one to vote, you should just go there and, you know, ruin your paper of voting. This is an important sticking point, causing numerous discussions in the opposition circles, by the way, but more about that later. Romanenkov also thinks that the people of Russia should care more about their own surroundings saying that the reason why Putin could get into power in the first place was because of ignorance. That is, he thinks that people are too dependent on stuff quote, given to them from above, end quote. And that any opposition candidates should make sure that they don't neglect the regions, smaller towns and rural communities and, you know, the smaller everyday issues that these places have. That is, according to him, it's important to include in a presidential candidate's program and, you know, general system of the campaign, people who would then, later on, run for elected administrative positions in these smaller localities so that a system could gain some depth. Funny that he talks about program, by the way. Uh, Putin doesn't have any program. Putin also hasn't participated in any debates whatsoever. Not even once in the last 17 years, mind you. About the program, by the way, when in a TV political discussion show very recently on uh, the opposition representative mentioned the lack of any program to the host on the first Russian channel, the host even got angry about this, and this was a major issue to Romanenkov, and his literal response in an angry tone was, and I quote here, well, did Moses have a program when he he took Jews out from Egypt? Yeah, this is a bit of a, a, a sidetrack, but this, uh, you know, making Putin more holy, that's the general attitude of the mainstream TV over there. Romanenko's channel is important because he also criticizes Navalny for his own black spots and weirdness. Like, for when Navalny refused him an interview on on a public kind of uh, mass event, which Navalny, Navalny organized, because he works with this Kreek TV, and they like I said, being basically a collection of associated independent journalists, apparently had published some some very harsh criticisms of Navalny, so that campaign blacklisted them. From Romanenko's channel, for example, about Navalny and his own issues, I found out that Navalny was very pro-war with Georgia in 2008 and apparently had supported Russian aggression there, which is a fact that he's obviously avoiding and has yet to explain. In the same way, by the way, and I think that's because of uh, popularity of this decision in Russia and, you know, various political reasons, because, you know, he still has to run, he's now saying that, quote, Crimean question is a complicated one, it's not a sandwich, we just simply can't return it. That's Navalny here. Thus refusing to condemn Russian aggression in Ukraine. And Romanenko brings this to attention. Even though he is a dedicated journalist, so he wants to, quote... Do what Navalny himself says must be done, and give criticisms when they are due. End quote. So his efforts in digging up stuff are, well, quite legitimate and very professional. But he is the one, the one kind of journalist from the opposition who tends to stay on more like safer, everyday side of things, except on a few kind of crazy occasions. Because you see, besides Reálne news journalistic series, Romanenko also puts weekly live streams on his channel where he answers questions and is often uh, interviewing guests. Some of which, and I'll be honest and and blank here, some of which of these guests are the weirdest people I have seen on the internet. Like, uh, while I was researching this show and, you know, trying to ask him these questions on his live stream, one of these live streams was uh, an interview with a presidential candidate from, and and I kid you not, Russian Monarchist Party. And the person's name was Anton Bakov, who used to be a liberal and is a businessman. And okay, okay, I know that this is another tangent, but this is so crazy that I just can't pass it up. You see, those monarchist party guys want to restore Romanov-era Russian Empire in the form of constitutional monarchy, and they even have a have a person to put there. They have Prince Karl Emich of Leiningen, also known by his orthodox name, Nikolai Kirillovich, and his... Uh, pretend regnal name, Emperor Nicholas III on the throne. He is a claimant to the now-defunct throne of the Russian Empire, which was held by Romanov's up until, you know, the bad things happened to them, and uh, he is a grandson of Grand Duchess Maria Kirillovna, who herself was the eldest child of Grand Duke Kirill Vladimirovich, who claimed the Russian crown from exile in 1924. He is a great-great-grandson of Emperor Alexander II of Russia and grand-nephew of Grand Duke Vladimir Kirillovich of Russia. Yeah, he has a bunch of titles which hold no meaning, by the way, at this point. So, in 2013, the Monarchistic Party of Russia, headed by this previously very liberal Bakov, declared him the primary heir to the Russian throne upon his conversion from Lutheranism, because he's German, to Eastern Orthodox Christianity. And in 2014, these guys announced the formation of the Imperial Throne, upon which point Karl Emich, already by that point, you know, uh, turned, had, had now turned to Eastern Orthodoxy, he agreed to, quote, assume imperial dignity as Emperor Nicholas III. Yeah. And, and those guys, those monarchist guys, have a presidential candidate. But they've got this figured out. As in their currently pretend Russian empire, because, you know, they have proclaimed restoration of this and everything, and they have offices and, and titles, they're just waiting to get real power now. Yeah, in this pretend Russian empire, Bakov, their presidential candidate, holds the position of arch-chancellor. And uh, his official royal title is <clears throat> light-bringing Knyaz. So, you know, easy transfer of duties when, when this guy wins the presidency. The party, by the way, invited the previous governor of annexed Crimea from 2014 to 2016, Natalia Poklonskaya, now a Gosduma deputy, who is also a very well-known marxist. After she incited the protests over that Matilda movie, which I talked about in my Fever Dreams episode, and uh, yeah, she she politely refused to run as a candidate for anything, really, so didn't join up, which is sad for those guys. And uh, it was weird as it may seem, and you might think, well, that's obviously a joke party. The weirdest thing is they're not a joke party. They do have some support, and and they're kind of serious about this, because for very strange reasons, monarchism is on the rise in Russia. As according to recent polling, again from Levada Center official statistics, about 9% of Russians think that a monarchy would be a better form of government for Russia than a republic. But, and here we go into the little, kind of, tiny, sweet opposition squabbles that they have amongst themselves. These Romanov monarchists, obviously, are in conflict with those other monarchists who are also on the rise, who would prefer just making Putin a czar instead of some German noble descendant from Romanovs. Besides, you know, other opposition groups. So, you know, I think it's gonna be a while until uh, the Russian monarchist party will take over. Now, all of this sidetracking is, uh, is not meant to say that this Romanenko in his channel takes in all the weirdest people out there to kind of, uh, damage the opposition. By all means, no. But I think that this does illustrate that, you know, he's staying true to his principles. Because, uh, as he, he responded to me, his principles are giving a voice to literally everyone, hearing all the opinions. He's a strong proponent of freedom of speech, and, you know, he's, on, like I said, he's on the more conservative end of opposition, but he will take in everyone and let them speak, and he will honestly criticize everything. After all, he's also had some hardcore communists and, like, real hardcore communists there, and liberally inclined oppositionaries too on his channel. Uh, same with, with other opposition journalists that he has had on. I will go on to the scale from more conservative opposition to kind of more liberal one as this goes on. And moving on on our list, the second journalist I would like to talk about here is Yuri Gimelfarb. I'm just gonna call him Yuri, because, you know, if Romanenko's surname is easily pronounced by me, then, uh, well, uh, Gimelfarb is something that, you know, when you're recording hardcore, it's kind of hard to pronounce all the time. This guy's a bit older, he's about 55 years old, he's a journalist, also living in Saratov Oblast, one time zone east from Moscow. He's the most recent one of all the influential people who has opened his YouTube channel. His YouTube channel is called New Rush Word. Uh, the rush here stands for kind of Russians, I guess, but uh it's spelled with an SH. It's kind of uh, strange for me, but hey, you know. I don't blame people for being bad in English. This, by the way, is word is also the name of the news site that he runs, which is intended as a news portal for Russian expat communities. He's considering emigrating himself at this point, but obviously that's hard to do. (laughs) Well, from Russia. First, I want to give you guys his Christmas and New Year's greeting, which he gave me Verbally, as, uh, as as a response, as a request from my, from me, uh, translated from Russian, obviously by myself. I promised to do that first when I speak about him. So uh, there we go. Quote, <clears throat> dear citizens of normal civilized countries, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you always remember that whatever issues your country might have are solvable after all you go to real elections you can participate in protests that mean something you can go on strikes and people will n- and police will not beat you up and for you it's reasonable to believe that people can actually change and achieve something remember that and remember that we over here would be very very happy if we would have the same problems that you do so don't lose that For us, over here, we need to get over our own issues, we need to set our own country up in order, and I sincerely hope that in the future, Russia will stop being run by an organized crime group, and we will become proper members of the global society. And again, Merry Christmas, and a Happy New Year. End quote. Well, that's a nice greeting here, and I do have to say that he, being orthodox, said uh, Happy New Year and then Merry Christmas in Russian. That doesn't sound well in Western society, really. With this guy, I have noticed a tendency in opposition news in Russia. The more idealistic you are, the more you want Russia to become like the Western countries, the more you think needs to be done, the more cynical the journalist becomes about whether or not anything actually will happen. So, Jaja Yura, or Uncle Yura, how Yuri is called by his audience, for one, yeah, he, for one, doesn't really believe that any substantial change will happen during his lifetime he thinks about the issues that are facing Russia on a bit more philosophical level, touching less of the practical, everyday, smaller issues stuff that Romanenkov does. And uh, his format is that he posts news commentaries, usually followed by a live stream where viewer questions are answered, and he does that daily. And in these kind of live streams, kind of questions are answered and, and more analysis is provided. In general... Yura uh, talks about how the problems in Russia are caused by systemic corruption and ignorance, which is, according to him, then prolonged and propagated by the government via promotion of how he calls it, quote, imperialist thinking. As such, he is often threatened by various paid trolls and hardcore Putin supporters, you know, often during streams, and, uh, you know, although that was quite a fun to watch for a while, it does become scary relatively quickly, uh, and, uh, you know... When I think about my own things, I can relate to that. Yura promotes critical reasoning, you see. that That's what makes him dangerous. He analyzes the news and promotes the idea that everyone should educate their kids so that they could see the prop- see through the propaganda. He's one of these people who also stand for critical reasoning and, you know, that future generations will improve this situation and that nothing will change in the closest 20 years. And that, that part about the critical reasoning, that's dangerous for every authoritarian government, not just the one in kremlin and talking about this uh, another i like to mention the biggest gripes these journalists have the most interesting things that uh, they have spoken about and uh, the biggest thing you were analyzed was about a month ago when he was massively enraged about how the minister of education in russia a member of united russia of course in his speech in a media conference declared quote If we educate our kids too much, then they will be harder to manipulate, but all media is manipulation. So if we won't, if we won't be able to manipulate them with our patriotic values, then the Western, Western liberals will do so through the internet, and then we will have a revolution. Do we really want a Maidan in Russia? We should really reconsider our education policies. Yeah, that that livestream and event analysis of this ended with Yuri basically declaring that whatever your minister tells you to do on public TV on Russia means that you should focus and do the completely opposite thing. In the political aspects, Yuri is a bit more pro-Navalny than Romanenkov, because he states that Navalny is the only legitimate opposition candidate with structure, organization, and, you know, had real chances of changing the outcome of the elections. However, since as, well you might know this, Navalny's registration had been declined, and again, tangent to explain why, because Navalny has been arrested so many times, and a couple of years ago, Navalny was found guilty on a fabricated case by Russian courts, and got two years of prison time with a conditional sentence. At least that's what Google tells me it is called in English. Now, in Russia and over here, what a conditional sentence is doesn't mean the same as you might have. For example, uh, when Googling this one up, Canadian site lawfacts.ca states that at least over there it's defined as follows, quote, A conditional sentence is an imprisonment-slash-jail sentence, except that the offender serves the sentence outside of jail under strict jail-like conditions. Conditional sentences are sometimes called house arrest because they often require an offender to spend all or part of a sentence in their house. Well, here it's a bit different, just so you understood the whole situation here. Here it just means that the person is considered to have a criminal conviction, which is a punishment in itself, and obviously doesn't allow one to run for presidency but there's no house arrest or anything like that the condition here is that if the person during the said said time commits another criminal act uh, not an administrative one mind you then the punishment is instantly applied on top of you know that other crime's punishment okay so navally got 2 years in uh, two, 2 years in conditional prison this way he he had like this criminal conviction for 2 years but you know he didn't have to go to prison or anything but he was like uh, very limited what he could do and stuff that was all completely fabricated, because, uh, as why do we know this? Because Navalny obviously appealed this in the European Court of Human Rights. He won the appeal, because, like I said, the whole thing was completely fabricated, and that court declared that the whole thing was political, and took off his conviction status, and kind of revoked revoked everything. And here's the fun part begins. See, according to Russian constitution, international laws and treaties where Russia is signatory apply over their own laws, and this is true for most countries. Uh, because, you know, uh, if, if, your, if your government signs a treaty, then they must oblige by it, and if they want to participate in this European court, and if they want to be able to sue someone, they do have to accept its decisions. So, uh, according to Constitution, they should accept the ruling that, you know, all this case was just politically weird and was wrong, but obviously nobody's going to do that. So, very recently, after Navalny was forbidden to run as a candidate, now Navalny is using his whole system and everything to call for a boycott of the elections, and he will also spawn new protests on 28th of January. And, uh, yeah, he wants to do that, to kind of deleg- delegitimize things. Putin's campaigns, however, Putin's campaigns stated goal for his re-election for the position of Vladimir Putin, which, which he will, quote, try to achieve, is... Mm, 70% voter activity of which Putin hopes to get 70% of the votes and yeah he will he will get those numbers i, I i'm ready to like bet money on that that's the, that's the shortest bet on planet earth at this point so these guys uh yura supports navalny in this with this boycott, and this boycott is there so that the voter activity would be so low as to call the legitimacy of these already fake elections in doubt, because with a much lower turnout, it will apparently, according to these people, will be much harder for the government to stuff election boxes. Oh, and yeah, uh, again, in Russia and in Latvia too, in Lithuania and many other places all over the place, uh voting is done by paper slips and counting them. We don't use vo- voting machines. So, like I said, Yuri is a full supporter of uh, this boycott idea, arguing that going to the elections and voting for some other opposition candidate, which is what Romanenko uh, said that people should do, uh, would, just be, would just help Putin to win the elections and to legitimize his government. And you know, Putin will win these elections no matter what. This uh, legitimacy is like the only thing that might actually hurt him in the long run. But here comes some a bit, some, some problems with this issue. See, my question here, which I sent to him on air and paid like 50 rubles for it, was, was like, was as follows. Quote, well, does Putin care about legitimacy? And what happens if the turnout is super low? What happens if this plan of yours succeeds? Then what? And yeah, this question sadly remained unanswered by Yuri. Which is why I can't give you a neat response here and explain this. Other criticism that i like to mention about Yuri, and this concerns Romanenkov too, is that they both state that Russia should leave Donetsk and stop messing around with Ukraine, but, according to them both, Crimea is, and this is quoting Yura here, a complicated issue, we just can't return it now, it's gone too deep and it'll cause more trouble than it's worth. End quote. Well, it will cause some trouble and will cause some issues, but that's what the sanctions are about. To this view of, of his and Romanenko's, I personally do not agree. I'm preparing a whole episode dedicated to the complete history of the Crimean Peninsula, like from, uh, from the times when it was owned by Genoa and even, even like before that. And stuff and the whole history of this area has been very complicated. But in my opinion, as, as far as the information available to me at this moment goes, I think it should be returned. But yeah. Yeah, uh, well, the weirdest thing is that we have now gone to, to the very radical end of this situation. And, uh, the third journalist that we're going to speak about, yeah, he gave me the answer to the question of, now what? And he also pointed a kind of clear view on, on this Crimean issue.
1: Hi, this is Alice. Happy New Year! I hope Djed will bring you many gifts this year, because a true Soviet knows that he brings gifts in New Year, not like that Santa guy we captured. A shout-out to our dear listener Stephen and his family, who visited us earlier this month. Hope you enjoyed Riga, and do stay in touch. After the episode that I did, there have been a lot of requests that I do more episodes. I'm not really a front-stage kind of person. If I feel like it and find a subject that I like, perhaps I'll make another episode, but writing scripts and researching is what Christophs does best. I am particularly interested in practical things, everyday life and family life, as well as many morbid subjects, so perhaps I might join another Dark Lord or lady and do a podcast with them. Do email us at the eastern border at gmail.com Finally, special greetings to every Dark Myths member out there. We love our Dark Lords and ladies. We're happy that so far most of the people whom we've sent our 100 patron special stuff in December got the card and the banknote. We'll send another batch in January, so please, if you're a patron, send us a message with your address there or on any other social media platform. We're on Twitter at the Eastern Underscore Border, on Facebook the Eastern Border, and of course our website where you can find all our episodes and download them for free, theeasternborder.lv. The book reading part comes out with this episode for patrons as well, so stay tuned, patrons. This podcast is fully funded by patrons like you. Thank you very much, and we appreciate you greatly. If you would like to become a patron, too, visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Eastern Border, where you can donate whatever sum you feel comfortable with. We appreciate every single one of you. Goodbye, and again, Happy New Year, and now, back to the show.
2: So, the third journalist is Alexander Sotnik, or Sasha Sotnik, Sasha being the Russian abbreviation of Alexander. And oh boy, now there is a revolutionary if there ever was one. But not in the Bolshevik sense, by the way, Uh, in the Jacobin sense of 1789 and in the spirit of all the liberal revolutions in 1848. He's a complete outsider, and at the same time... He's also the most professional and well-known of the Russian opposition journalists on YouTube, who's running a team of people who actually go out to the streets and ask various questions about politics to people of Moscow and people in the regions, because, you know, he actually has a team. And Sotnik also has a lot of contacts with businessmen, economists, and political scientists, and he gets them for interviews quite often. Well, the opposition ones. And um, including some, by the way, who are Russian immigrants in the United States, and one of which of them, by the way, and often gives reports on Sotnik's channel, is involved in consulting the United States Congress on the new sanction list. And, you know, pointing out where to look for all these associated people with Putin uh, for this new sanction list that they are planning to launch in February of 2019. Now, Sotnik is a wild character. But his CV, if you look at what he's done, is seriously impressive. First of all, he's also a poet and a musician. He likes French classical chanson pop music, it's kind of popular in Russia too, and he has released six albums of his own songs. Sotnik also has been on the Russian Literary Council from 1993 to 2000, due to his poetry being, well, seriously good. And even today, as a journalist, he often uses that when he wants to give an emotional examination of daily events. He'll make a news analysis that rhymes and you know has some has some like all this uh, emotional weight behind it, which is I think really good from nineteen ninety nine to two thousand sotnik also got the Russian state to support his creative work. He had this uh state state premium thing for like support of uh, poets, literally people but that uh that ended at one point. Obviously, when Putin started to crack down on everyone. Like every dictator, the artists and intellectuals got hit first. Because I have yet to see a poet or a writer who wouldn't be a sellout and would feel amazing in a society with, like, serious censorship. So, after that, Sotnik decided to go into journalism, as he's written a couple of books, some of them are now available as audiobooks, and uh, he's also among the more active active people who participate in, in kind of opposition, anti-Putin activities. And he's used the money he's made from those books to start his own Sotnik TV YouTube channel, which is now his only source of income, and he doesn't have any sponsors and YouTube doesn't run ads on his channel. Yeah, about those ads, how Russian YouTube office works is a special subject for another episode, by the way, but uh, just just do know that channels that criticize Putin get artificial dislikes and droves by bots and trolls, they get strikes and often run into troubles with demonetization so they don't have ads on them. So to stay around in Russia, and, you know, so that they wouldn't be declared a foreign agent, YouTube there are doing some seriously non-ethical things. But like I said, that's for another episode. Right now, just know that he's, he doesn't get any any ads here, and I'll ask about Russian YouTube to Mr. Potapenko when, when he comes over, so uh, then, then, we'll, then, we'll, then we'll know more. Anyhow, Sotnik, just like me, exists on donations through various means and Patreon. He, unlike some others I've mentioned here, don't have deals with any indie television or, you know, financing from businessmen opposed to Putin, even if, even if anonymous. Because those groups, for the most part, for the most part, think that their ideal Russia is that of the early 2000s, to about 2004. For them, that's the best Russia. That is Putin's first term, when everything wasn't as bad, when Russia had real opposition parties, and censorship wasn't as strict, and political satire was allowed, and elections were, or at least seemed to be, more real. These guys, for the most part, won the stability back, the business-as-usual feeling. Sotnik, however, is a different sort of opposition journalist. He wants to take it back all the way to 1993 when Russian constitution was created, the modern Russian constitution, saying that the whole system as such was doomed right from the start. He says that, quote, This presidential style of a republic doesn't work in Russia, as it, as it will always get a dictator in the end. Just, just how that has happened so many times in the past. Sotnik looks at everything in Russia, and personally believes that when Putin's cronies will finally push it too far, that a new revolution will happen. And this time, this new revolution, according to him, will come from the youth that doesn't watch television, and that is tired from the constant nonsense and poverty and corruption that's going on there, and who are getting real information about the situation in other countries from the news that can be found on the internet. Because in Russian news, everything is terrible everywhere else. Like all the time. And everyone's assaulting their interests, stealing money from their grandmom's pensions and whatnot. So, Sotnik is on the far, far dissident side of the opposition, and uh, here is where the election boycott thing comes in. Which we've gone through, basically. See, um, as Sotnik believes that the whole constitution of Russian Federation has been seriously flawed since the inception, and that it's completely ignored these days anyways, with whatever checks and balances it had, they're just meaningless, he thinks that it's utterly pointless to participate in any elections. He compares it with collaboration with Gestapo in Nazi Germany, and, like, actively proclaims that as a war crime that might get punished when the new regime arrives. And you know what? He did give me the answer to the question, well, and what next, then? He said that, as he and his team ask around real people in Moscow and the regions, like various questions about the politics, that it's obvious that Putin isn't as popular as they say on the TV and that, quote, Refrigerator always beats television. At one point, the X hour will happen, and then angry folks will take it to the streets, and then, and only then, this gang of thugs who rule our country will meet their doom. Sadly, I have to say it will be a bloody event. Very sadly. But there is no other way for Russia. Everything else are just pointless games. End quote. And I believe him when he's saying this. Sotnik is sincere, at least he seems sincere to me. He is also super deeply cynical about the real chances. He's seen it all happen since the beginning, after all, and he's been on the Literally Council, which by now has lost all its real influence, and he knows how things are being manipulated with. He's not praising violence. He's just honest about what he says, and, you know, thinks that it is the only way to actually make things better eventually. And at the same time, he's probably the only person who wants to change the system to the core. Actually, you know somewhat ideally, believing that a honest, real democracy is possible in Russia. Other guys are more skeptical about this fact, because, you know, he sees that there are people there who have the potential to make things better. For his use, he has been forced to move in Georgia in early 2016, but he came back to Russia, which, as Sotnik says, he loves more than anything because he's a real patriot of his homeland, not like the thieves and murderers that are in power or their TV brainwashed supporters, end quote. When the the direct threats stopped, he just, you know, like I said, came back. Now, by the way, the threats are back, directed not only at him, but also at his wife and his newborn kid, so he's, as of late December 2017, seriously considering moving again. But uh, the decision to move, apparently at this point, is not just on him, because, you know, last time he didn't have a newborn kid, now this situation also concerns his wife. He, by the way, Sotnik, is also very open about Russian aggression in Ukraine, And he's the only one who has, like, literally always insisted on returning Crimea to Ukraine and about Donbass and Luhansk. He says that the return of Crimea should be the first step any new Russian government just does. Like, this is also, again, in stark contrast of the previous, uh, more conservative Russian opposition journalists. In general, my best wishes to Alexander. Even if he is idealistic and at the same time manages to somehow be even more cynical than I am, and I don't agree to all of his views, and sometimes I think he overplays the emotional part of, of his news analysis when, when he speaks about how everything is terrible, because he, you know, likes to give this, as a poet, this emotional impact. He is kind of more radically liberal wing of the Russian opposition. So, you know, those are kind of the <laughs> mainstream, mainstream um, anti-Putin things. But, but, as a small bonus, and that's not actually a small bonus, that's one of the main things here, after all of this view on Russian opposition journalists and what they do, I decided to get some outside perspective. And this time, from Ukraine. There is Viktor Litovchenko from the Vata TV project, very popular among the Russian commune in the United States, Ukraine, the Baltic countries, and, you know, in Russia itself. Now, Vata, here, stands for cotton wool, that's a slang term for poor, stupid people who buy into Russian propaganda, uh, very popular amongst Russian opposition. The term itself originating from a cheap jacket, fooled with cotton wool, worn in cold weather by Soviet soldiers and people working in Kolkhoz. I managed to do a prolonged Skype interview with him, which we will also put on YouTube, with subtitles at one point, uh, that is when we'll get to it in hopefully January. Now, Viktor is an actor. He is mostly a theater actor, but he's also been in various Russian movies, uh, mostly portraying Nazis and, and, you know, all sorts of rebellious people. And he also does TV work in Ukraine, filming commercials and stuff, and doing things for Technopark, kind of uh, technology-related TV program in Ukraine. And one day in his studio, he was around there with his crew, and as he told me, he was just, you know, bored from all the propaganda. Ukrainian one, Russian one, American one, all of it. And he decided just to, you know, look at all the weird news that's going on, and make a show about it. And right now, well, obviously, he's mostly focusing on Russia, because he looks at the news from kind of a funny aspect. He takes the silliest, most outlandish claims of Russian TV and press or just the weirdest things and reports about strange things that happened there. And he kind of makes fun of this. He portrays himself in this role of a vatnik, of this person, and he kind of makes fun of everything, doing over-the-top things about this. He's more or less a comedy show, mostly about Russian news, some Ukrainian news, some EU news. Thing is, we had a deep conversation with him, and uh, one of the questions asked for him was that there is this war in Donetsk and Luhansk and the annexation of Crimea, and how the war is going. Because, you know, uh, we all have heard about the deliveries of lethal weapons to Ukrainian forces there. And he said that, yeah, but Ukraine as a country are not interested to grab everything back in one go, even though by now they totally could do that. Because everyone who was like Ukrainian actually have left these areas. So now if they will just grab them back, they will have 90% very pro-Russian people there. So Ukrainian army's position in this situation is to do it village by village, taking it in in small parts so that they could provide help to the people, so that they could reintegrate Ukrainians there and so that everything would happen slowly and there will be, you know, less bloodshed, less rioting that way. He has some strong opinions on Ukraine and Russia, but he is doing a great job with with ex- explaining all these things. Because even though he does that only in Russian, it really is an important task that he's doing. Because you know, some of the things that are on Russian television and you know they're reported there are so outlandish that I simply couldn't translate them and put them here. And, he, and you know, I, I sometimes post these Russian news myself on social media, and I try to inform you about what's really going on there. But there are some things that I just simply couldn't even translate to you. I just couldn't explain them because they're too weird. And yeah, Vata TV does just that. They're just making fun of everything. They, they made fun of Admiral Kuznetsov. Who is the only aircraft carrier of the Russian fleet, which which runs on coal apparently because it just gives out extremely large black smoke? it can carry all five planes and two of them kind of crashed and uh, crashed and burned and fell into the ocean near the coast of Syria when Russians kind of uh, dragged their <laughs> dragged their ship there now on vata TV this was obviously depicted as uh, in the light that it should deserve because Russian media portrayed this voyage of um, of this Admiral Kuznetsov as the greatest achievement in all times and nations, and, you know, that that this Admiral Kuznetsov makes the Americans fear our military might. And, you know, on Vata TV, he would comment that, yeah, well, you know, if you have something that obviously has a risk of exploding because it's really old and terrible, and, you know, it doesn't even have a heating system, working heating system on it, then, yeah, you would be scared of an ecological catastrophe happening, like, somewhere near you. Victor also told me that, you know, uh, he he kind of envies the Baltic countries here because after the after the collapse of the Soviet Union, yeah, we turned west pretty fast in comparison. We tried to get into the European Union and everything. But um, as he tells me, Ukraine was basically a vassal state of Russia up until 2014 with that Yanukovych president president there. Because uh, for example, like uh, in Ukraine, many military factories of the Soviet Union were located. Ukraine also has important and large oil reserves and they have steel and all these things were previously sold to Russia for like non-market extremely super cheap prices while buying overpriced uh, overpriced gas from Russia and obviously all that was stolen by the previous pre-Euromaidan Ukrainian government. Now, not to say that they don't have enough, their own their own problems right now. They have huge corruption still there in Ukraine. They have huge income inequality, but they're, they're on their way. At least that's what Mr. Litovchenko told me, that, you know, we still have a long way to go to become a, a European Union country, but, you know, they're actually trying really, really hard. And as he claims... The biggest kind of issue Russia has with all this project is that, hey, they, they lost access to, for example, rocket factories. Cause, uh, most of the strategic rockets used by Russia, like military strategic rockets, yeah, they were kind of developed, designed, and made in Ukraine, and now Ukraine is obviously not going to sell them to, to Russians. Anyhow, uh, Viktor in his Vata TV, just makes a lot of fun and just shows the very craziest craziest aspects of both ukraine and russia and if you speak if you speak russian and can understand it and i'm pretty sure that at least some of my listeners can i highly recommend going to vata tv youtube channel as well i'll of course of course put the link on on the show description but yeah this is interesting perspective for one uh, when we started talking it's kind of uh, kind of funny cuz you know as you might have heard from me earlier here, uh even in this episode, Russia Russia is prone to calling everyone else a fascist. Except Ukraine when they where they call them uh and Junta. Because they think that um the fact that Ukraine is now working with NATO and that Ukraine is trying to integrate into Western society as a direct threat to themselves. Basically, the Russian mainstream media thinks, um, thinks that Ukraine has sold out its independence and that now it's occupied by evil Americans who will enslave everyone there and force them, force them to do terrible, terrible things and turn them into the rotting West. Which basically entails, you know, having a normal, decent salary and some rights, actually some elections. And like Yuri previously there said, you know, they they wish that they would have our projects. Now, Viktor, um, Viktor is very skeptical about Russian opposition. Well, I would be too in his position after all they're at war now. Especially since that he commented that on his channel he had been contacted by a lot of members of the Russian opposition, because, you know, they like any criticism of Putin, and Vata TV project is a large YouTube channel, so, you know, if you are an opposition candidate and want to do something against Putin, then, you know, there's your electorate there. But, Viktor told me that all these conversations end with Crimea. Because, like I said, only the most radical opposition, Mr. Sotnik here, and people like him, are for the return of Crimea to Ukraine. Like, they, they all are for this, this uh, ending of conflict in Luhansk and Donbas regions, but Crimea is a painful topic, and that obviously hurts Ukrainians much more than, than these, these Donbass areas. Because as soon as you mention that, then Viktor commented that he feels all this imperialism just returning, coming back in different forms. And Victor Victor considers that, you know, if nothing is changed systematically in Russia, then in place of Putin, you might just get another oligarch, which he really wishes not to happen, because, you know, as he told me, Russia is best left alone to their own devices, let them deal with their country as they want, but the problem is that their imperialistic ambitions means that, you know, everyone who used to be in USSR are under potential threat of all these... All these annexations and and fake civil wars and little green men. And you know what? Ukraine and Crimea are just the loudest examples here, which we know right now. Uh, For example, there is also South Ossetia. Then there's Abkhazia. But Abkhazia is a bit more complex issue because Georgia wasn't innocent there. And as I've got my Abkhazian listener here, he says that Russia actually helped there. Uh, but that's that's one voice there. I've I've read many others, but I think Abkhazia is a bit more difficult situation than the rest of them. Then there's uh, Nagorny Karabakh, which is in Azerbaijan, and then there's Transnistria in Moldova, which is an another very weird issue with all this situation here. But yeah, they have uh, Russia has splattered all over the map by this point in this uh, this region around Ukraine. So yeah, Ukrainians are just very, very weary about this situation. But what can you do? This is what Litovchenko fears the most. That you know, what if nothing is changed systematically, and we just exchange Putin for some other person, then um, then this will just not stop, and that would be the worst thing for all the region in general. But yeah, for the most part, he he doesn't usually do uh, that depressive, th- that depressing stories. For the, like, the, his latest story was about all the achievements this year which Russia has declared has made America and Europe fear them. Because in Russia, there is, according to Litovchenko, some sort of prison mentality going on still. Like there there is no cooperation, there are no deals where both sides kind of profit. there are no mutual <laughs> mutual benefits. there are winners, then there are losers and there's a popular Russian saying loch mamant, loch that means uh, loch means kind of moose, but uh, it also stands for stupid gullible people, which is like gullible people will not die out, they're not mammoths. Okay, again, it's a Russian pun, but that basically stands for that if you see someone whom you can swindle, you should. So this is this is what uh, this is what they're trying to do. They have this thing about fear and and stuff, and uh, Viktor Litovchenko kind of compares them to rabid dogs. They they will kind of yell at you and they will make you fear you, but if you walk softly and carry a big stick, they will will run away eventually. That is his opinion. But really, it's one way how to look at all the terrible stuff that's going on, and even like Russian military threats, at least for myself, in a manner that's at least slightly optimistic. And with this, we end our New Year's episode. I hope you liked it. I hope you will check out those people whom you can understand, those who post in English. And if you speak Russian, please feel free to check out those other things. And we're going to do a lot of uh, slightly more interesting things, and uh, I want to kind of improve my my cooperation with the opposition in Russia, because there are some books still which I want to buy, which are not available in Latvia, that, that I might get sent from Russia, and that would be great. But for now, happy new year, and stay educated, and, uh, like I said, this is, this is what I want to quote Jura again. If you think that, uh, you, you have huge issues there in the West, well, then, you know, there are some people out there who would be really happy to have your problems. In the end, losing your political consciousness and not caring, is clearly not the way to go because that leads to terrible outcomes. До товарищи.
1: This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.l Will rummage even to the Western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our co hosts in the Great Motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.